Hey, it's me, the Liberty Hippie, here to take you through another episode of Homesteads and Homeschools. Today is episode number 56, which means you can find the show notes at homesteadsandhomeschools.com slash 056. Thank you all for tuning in. This is your first time. Welcome. Welcome aboard the the fine show that we have here. And uh, if you're returning, well, thanks for coming back. Uh, I hope you left a review. And uh, I hope you have all hit that subscribe button. And if you haven't, go do it now. Anyway, today's guest is uh, was recommended to me by Kate Kavanaugh back in episode 35, uh, homesteadsandhomeschools.com slash 035. She was our, our ethical butcher that we had on. She went from being a, a vegetarian to a butcher, and she had mentioned that uh, there's this, this little little farm around me that's uh, is making big waves in, uh, in how meat is produced and um, how meat is delivered and what, what access uh, and, and bringing, bringing meat to people, right? increasing access to high quality uh, products to, to people um, other than just, you know, you go to your store, you go to your butcher and you uh, get what you get and who knows how old it is and who knows where it came from and who knows how it was treated. Um, these guys over at uh, White Oak Pasture are, are doing things a little bit differently. And so today I have on Miss Jenny Harris. Uh, Jenny has been on the farm pretty much all her life. Um, she is the fifth generation there and she witnessed the change um, from industrialized monoculture agribusiness into what White Oak Pastures has become. And we, we got into that and we talked all about that stuff. And it's, um, it's really, really, really interesting. If you are in the area, I encourage you to go check them out. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can get over there to check them out. They're uh, just a couple hours away, so it's, it's not too bad. Not too bad. It's definitely doable. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy the show. So uh, let's go plant those Liberty Seeds with Miss Jenny Harris. My, my guest today is Miss Jenny Harris. She's over there at White Oak Pastures in uh, Bluffton, Georgia. A um, little, little different today. You know, usually you talk to kind of homestead type folks, um, which is kind of what they do over there on a much larger scale. Um, so I, I want to have them on today to talk about kind of their what they got going over, over there. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Jenny, for coming on and uh, talking today absolutely thank you for having me yeah no problem so uh how long has white oak pastures uh been a been a thing for how long has it been around for so i am the fifth generation of the farm along with my younger sister jody uh and our spouses uh we have been on the same piece of property in early county for 154 years so since 1866 all right, all right. So you guys have, you've been there for a while. It's been uh, been there for for some time. Um, so you grew up farming a little bit, helping out here and there, or what was that like? Yep. So I'll give you a little bit uh, of our family history. 
My great-great-grandfather settled on this farm after the Civil War. And if you wanted to eat it, wear it, or smoke it back in those days, you had to grow it. So uh, that's the way we operated. He would butcher several, uh, you know, uh, several chickens, a couple of hogs, and a cow every Friday or Saturday, loaded up on a mule-drawn wagon, uh, and sell it locally in the town of Bluffton. You fast forward to uh, his grandson's time, which would be my grandfather, uh, you know, the, the meat industry changed. During that era, uh, meat was centralized or animal production was centralized, industrialized, and commoditized to a point where we were a monoculture of cattle, a cow-calf operation. We would raise calves to weaning and then uh, you know, sell them to the to the big outfits out west, and we continued that for uh, for several decades. It wasn't until my dad took over in the '90s that we transitioned to the type of farming we we practice today. Uh, he learned about a consumer that cared a lot about animal welfare, uh, you know, the, the way the land was treated as well as the rural economics of how farming affected small towns like Bluffton. And so he, he, he transitioned to a more softer, gentler type of agriculture. All right. So how, how um, did you say 95 that was? Mm-hmm, that's correct. Okay. So what was, do you, do you remember that transition at all? How, how long that kind of process was? Yep. So I was born in 1986. So most of my childhood uh, you know, was spent uh, under the industrial uh, model that we practiced here at Waddock Pastures. Uh, in 95, I was 10. And, uh, and, and for me, you know, I was raised showing cattle and things like that. But, you know, it was, farming was more so just extra time for me to spend with my father. Uh, you know, so being uh, really astute as to the details that were happening around me is not anything I can necessarily take uh, take credit for that I that I noticed or didn't notice, uh, but you know the 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 changes that I remember were giving up chemical fertilizer on the land. Our our pastures were always beautiful throughout my childhood, and I didn't realize that what made them beautiful was uh, you know the copious quantities of fertilizer that we we spread to them you know every year. Uh, you know, and so that that was a, a real abrupt change. When we gave up chemical fertilizer, the farm looked terrible. You know, we, we were we couldn't establish a stand of grass. It was it was really ugly. You know, and and so of course everybody was thinking, what in the heck are you doing, Will? You know what uh, what what is making you think that this is such a great idea? It's clearly not going to work. Uh, you know, the, the second big change was introducing other species. Uh, rather than just having a monoculture of cattle here on the farm, so, uh, introducing small ruminants, later swine and poultry, uh, you know, that was a very obvious and exciting change. Uh, and the rest has been obvious and exciting, uh, you know, uh, building a general store and, uh, you know, building own farm slaughter, bringing people from all over the world to work at White Oak Pastures. It's, it's been a really fun journey. Yeah, I can imagine it's been uh, interesting to say the least. So you you guys were just went from cows then, and then how long would that did that process take? Do you think before you started getting different um, 
you know, different ruminants and getting, getting other kind of species on the, the farm. So my grandfather, who was born in the 20s and probably uh, really gained control of the farm uh, in, his, in the 40s and 50s, he was responsible for uh, really disrupting the polycultural production system that we have. You know, uh, you know he, under his watch was when meat was, uh, you know, industrialized. And, and so uh, I would say that the disappearance of species happened somewhere in the 40s, 50s. Uh, and and the, the resurgence of those started uh, in the early 2000s. What, what ultimately okay. led to us introducing a, a new species was the fact that we gave up chemical fertilizer on the farm and relied on cattle to graze it. And the first few years, there wasn't anything for them to graze. We were uh, you know, feeding a lot of hay because we just, again, could not establish a good stand of grass. The soil was dead and, and really uh, needed that jump start. So uh, once the, the grasses did start to take off, we noticed that you know, just like we had once had a polycultural uh, production system with livestock, you know, the, the, the grasses were the, the same way. And nature okay. abhors a monoculture. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't just, uh, you know, ryegrass and clover or uh, bahia grass and Bermuda grass and Johnson's grass shooting up. It was a little bit of everything. You know, there were dozens of varieties of grasses that, that came up and not all of them were preferred by cattle. So we uh, introduced small ruminants, being sheep and goats in the early 2000s, uh, introduced swine in 2000 and well I'm sorry poultry in 2009 and then swine in 2012 so today we take a lot of pride in pasture raising and hand butchering 10 species of livestock on the farm so back to like when when you made that switch over and uh you know things are kind of the soil's been beat to death for for years and just kind of saturated with with chemicals was there was there hesitancy to to maybe go back to like the way things were when you know the grass wasn't coming along? Do you remember any of, of that transition? I feel like as as a farmer, as someone that's kind of relying on that for for an income, that could be a pretty scary time. Um, you know, you just, I don't know. I, I would assume you were buying buying hay, buying grain that you, you might not have had to buy before. Or... Sure. So we, you know, my dad talks about using chemical fertilizer like it was uh, an addiction, you know, as addicted as people are to, you know, alcohol or drugs or nicotine, he was addicted to chemical fertilizer. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was like pressure washing that, you know, within, within seconds, you can see, you know, how, how much benefit that, uh, you know, that's having, uh, you know, uh, on the land. So, um, we, we really struggled. The, the temptation of using chemical fertilizer was there and remained there post giving it up uh, for probably five years. It, it, it literally took uh, that long for us to see, uh, see any benefit, I mean, uh, at all in the grasses. Yeah, that's, that's a crazy thing to think about. You know, five years sounds like such a long time, but it's and it's not, but at the same time, when you're when you're hanging on like that, it it really is. Um, and I can see where it would be hard for people to to make that switch, to make that that 
jump into that. Um, so I, you mentioned earlier, um, kind of why he, why your, your father got onto that transition, um, kind of why he decided to, to get into it. Um, was it more like the, the customer base was kind of more interested in that, that sort of farming, um, at the time or what, what was it that kind of triggered that, that switch? So one important thing for uh, for us to say out loud is is the fact that we did not necessarily need to change the way we farmed. Uh, you know, my father inherited a thousand acres and a nice herd of cattle from his dad, and under the commodity production system that we practiced at White Oak Pastures, we were always profitable. We paid taxes every year, so mm-hmm. the the interest in changing was was completely dependent on dad's lack of interest in the commodity market. He, he says that he wishes he had seen a burning bush and someone from heaven <laughs> down and spoke to him. And the truth is that that didn't happen. Uh, but what, what did happen was, you know, he's got a pretty alpha uh, aggressive personality. And so if the label said use two CCs, he used four. And if it said <laughs> apply you know, a court to the acre, he probably, uh, you know, he probably applied three or four. And so what that did was speed up the unintended consequences of, uh, of those products that, that he was using here on our farm. You know, he, he just got to see it before everybody else. He became disgusted with the excess in the commodity uh, production system and simultaneously learned about consumers who, were interested in food being produced in a responsible manner with focus on animal welfare and, and land regeneration. So, you know, it, it sounds a lot better to, to say that he was led to it from a, you know, from a, from a, uh, a higher place or higher purpose. But the truth is he just, what was cool to him in his twenties was less cool in his thirties and even even less cool in his forties, and 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 that sort of jump started his interest in this uh, softer, gentler type of agriculture. Yeah, I can I can see how that could could happen. Um, but uh, so in today's operation, then you don't use chemical fertilizers. Um, do you use fertilizer of, of sorts, or do you just kind of work in what the the animals give you? Or good good question. So what? What we do is is we use animals as tools to shape land. You know, we've been fortunate enough to add uh, acreage to our farm every year. We I mentioned my dad inherited a thousand acres of land from from his father, and that that's the land that had been in our family for you know a hundred years. Uh, but we've we've tripled in size thanks to the demand of of grass fed beef and pastured poultry. Um, and, and so, um, you know, that, that's been a, a really exciting thing to watch. Cool. Cool. So you, um, when you guys brought in the other animals, the sheep and the goats, um, how, how steep was that learning curve or did you guys kind of have it, have it knocked? Cause you were just so used to cows that, uh, you know, sheep and goats were, were nothing new. It was about as steep as a learning curve could possibly be. <laughs> You know, the, the truth is, if you're a South Georgia cattleman, you don't know anything about raising pastured chickens or small, you know, pastured small ruminants. That, that's just all there is to it. Uh, you know, we, we definitely learned what not to do in several 
iterations of what not to do, but have been fortunate to uh, create a program where we've attracted some really high performance production managers. And now they're, uh, you know, White Oak Pastures is home to about 165 employees, uh, 30 of which are management level folks who know a lot about the, uh, their field. Okay. That's, uh, that's, that's, it's impressive. It's, it's, uh, such a cool thing to think about that you can be that big and, um, not have to sacrifice, um, some of the, the principles that come into it in, uh, you know, keeping, keeping things healthy, you know, not well, just, and, uh, and it's, this is an important, uh, important thing to, to say, you know, my family never, never aspired to own a, uh, you know, a USDA inspected, uh, packing plant. <laughs> so that was, I was never on the list of really exciting things to do before one dies, uh, as far as, 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 as we were concerned. But the truth is, in order for us to market what we had, we ultimately had to build a USDA inspected slaughter, uh, slaughter plant. And, you know, none of us were really passionate about poultry or really passionate about hogs, but as we moved away from commodity production, we realized that we needed to have poultry and we needed to have hogs. Uh, and so in, in building the, you know, investing millions of dollars into these processing plants, you know, we, we have to raise a certain amount to be able to create full-time jobs that pay these bills. So, uh, you know, you raise a really good point that, you know, maintaining integrity uh, despite the size and the truth is, you know, size matters, but but this is a really complex uh, production system. My dad talks a lot about what is a factory farm. And a factory farm, uh, just take the word factory. In a factory, you might build lawnmowers or you might sew shirts. That is a factory. Uh, factories are very complicated, but factories are not complex. You know, factory farms raise pigs or raise chickens or raise cattle. Uh, those systems are very complicated, but they're not complex. One of the things that makes White Oak Pastures unique and special is the fact that all of this stuff works in symbiosis with each other. And you know, we've been able to you know, scale, excuse me, scale up uh, you know, the things that we're working with regard to the other species uh, because that's what it takes. As we've continued to add land, we can't just add land with the expectation that cattle will graze it. We have to also introduce more small ruminants, you know, more swine and more, more poultry to holistically affect uh, those pastures. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. That's amazing. I'm curious about the, uh, the USDA, um, your, your processing plants there. Now you guys, butcher things by hand, right? That's correct. So um, how does that certification work? Is it a different sort of certification? Do you have to train your butchers differently or how, who does that? So the, uh, the interest in building a, a processing plant on the farm um, you know, happened in the early 2000s. We, we established a couple of wholesale customers like Whole Foods and Publix and when sales were growing, the nice folks that we uh, that we were using in Tifton, Georgia, to process our cattle, uh, 
uh, were not able to, to grow with us. They had a business before we came along and they, they were not interested in adding on to their, uh, you know, to their plant. And so we were basically left with the decision uh, to either, you know, make this thing work and build a plant or, you know, you know, stay where we were, which was you know, certainly not, not cash flow positive uh, or profitable in, in any sense of the word. So in building a processing plant, uh, dad was able to hire uh, a, a master's degree food, sci- food scientist from the University of Florida, Brian Sapp. Uh, he was dad's uh, first, first hire. And Brian came here and helped finish up the construction of the plant and, uh, and, and, and trained the staff that, that we had here. You know, the first animal was slaughtered by Brian Sapp and the first animal was fabricated or butchered by Brian Sapp. Uh, he was really the only person that knew how to do anything. He was the only non-cowboy person here. Um, and, and, and that has worked uh, really well. You think about the, the scale of slaughtering that we're doing here on our farm. A commodity plant might do 400 head of cattle an hour. I'll say that again because it's an unbelievable number. 400 head of cattle every hour, 16 hours every day. It's just a tremendous, a tremendous amount of volume. So we'll do 30 to 35 head of cattle every day, five days per week. So uh, we're we're just a drop in the bucket when it when it pertains to uh, meat processing. But back in my great-great-grandfather's day, this was sort of the, the production system that existed. There was no mass production. You know, everybody would butcher a little bit and sell it very locally, uh, you know, and then, and then start over the next weekend. And then, uh, you know, then, then meat was, was uh, industrialized and mass produced to a level that, you know, was, it made it very apparent that there were unintended consequences. So, uh, no one here knew how to butcher animals or slaughter them except for Brian. Uh, all of the training that happened uh, are, are certainly fruits of his labor. Uh, and so he, he is our director of operations now. And, uh, and so we're really proud of, of that small scale butchering that we do every day here in Bluffton. Yeah, that's cool. Do you, uh, do you bring, do you do um, business with other, other farms, do other producers bring their their stuff to you guys to, to butcher we do we uh we don't do any custom slaughter but we do work with our neighbors uh you know to to, to raise cattle on our production protocol cool that's uh it's nice because you, you kind of spread it a little bit you know um how long did that process take to actually build build a plant once you once your dad decided okay we're, we're we need to do this we need to to get this plant here um all the the licensing, the building, and all that. How how long did that take? Uh, so we started in the fall of 2007 uh, and completed the red meat plant in uh, the summer of 08. The poultry plant uh, we started in 2010 and finished in 11. So we we now have two on farm USDA processing plants: one for red meat and one for poultry. All right, and uh, so I guess you got how many how many I don't even know if it's it's worth asking. How many animals do you have there? I, how many cattle do you guys run? So it's, it's that's an interesting question. <laughs> a friend of ours just produced a really great video called "A Hundred Thousand Beating Hearts," and we we think that that's about how many hearts we have at White Oak Pastures when it comes to uh, employees and, and livestock uh, combined. 
All right. Now, I know um, on your your website, you guys have um, so you're you're a regenerative farm, um, but you're also uh, zero waste. Um, <clears throat> so what is what does that look like for you guys? I mean, if you're you're butchering, you know. 35 head of cattle a day. I imagine there's, there's some waste generated there. What do you guys, how do you use everything up? What do you, what do you guys do for that? I'll divide that up into to three sections. So when we slaughter an animal, there's the obvious uh, demand for meat. Uh, that's mm-hmm. certainly not at a shortage. So the, the meat goes uh, into inventory and sold as, as grass fed beef. The second part of that uh, are, is the secondary market. And that might be the tracheas and gullets and ears and tails that we can further process and add value to in our pet chew department. Uh, we've got a, a separate building that's set up to turn those odd items into dehydrated chews for pets, but also uh, uh, raw hide production out of the cattle hides as well as tallow uh, beauty products, so moisturizers and soaps and candles. Um, so we're, we're real excited about that. And then the, the third bucket is the composting operation. There are so, certain parts that, um, that, that we compost with a method that Cornell University developed um, that turns those inedible parts and pieces of those carcasses into organic fertilizer that we later spread on the farm as a soil amendment. Okay. Very cool. That's, it's impressive. You know, it's, it's one of those things when you butcher an animal and you, you know, break it down and then put it in your freezer and you look at all the stuff that you're left with. Um, there can be a lot of waste there if you, if you decide not to use it or if you just kind of, you know, don't care to use it. But, um, there's a lot of value in that, even just, you know, personally, um, you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's a big animal, you know, cows, goats, they're, they're big animals. And when you break it down and you want to get all that you can out of it, it seems, seems wasteful not to. Um, well, you know, and, and for us, you know, all of that has value, you know, factories treat certain things as byproducts versus farms uh, where, where we see that, you know, goodness gracious, you know, fat doesn't compost well, uh, you know, there's, there's not necessarily a market for all of the fat. What else can we do with it? You know, turning it into soap, uh, just is a, a very logical movement for us. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, the people who are really, really concerned about the foods that they consume are also concerned about the, the moisturizers that they rub all over their skin, you know, or the soaps that they, they use every day in their shower. So, you know, uh, one of the, the most, um, one of the most eye-opening things for, for me um, in regards to talking about white oak pastures in, comer- in comparison to commodity production is that we don't think there are any byproducts. We think that they're just product. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a nice way to, to think about it, to look at it. Um, everything is, everything is useful, you know, um, just got to figure out how to use it. So uh, I'm kind of curious, um, you guys have, have grown quite a bit over the last few years. Um, how does that look in, in terms of, uh, Bluffton itself? Um, I imagine, you know, hiring people has, has brought some, some families in, um, you know, that your, your 
I don't want to say lifestyle necessarily, but the the manner in which you uh, farm, um, I'm sure probably has some some outreach within town or, or not. I don't know. What does what does that look like? Bluffton is a really unique place. the The last census that I saw said that there were 100 citizens in the town of Bluffton. <laughs> Uh, prior to 2016, the only thing you could buy in Bluffton was a postage stamp. You know, no, no red lights, uh, no, no stores, no industry. It was a town that literally was established on agriculture uh, and then completely abandoned on agriculture when it was industrialized. Um, there are not too many places that you can be east of the Mississippi and, and uh, still be 50 miles from the nearest Walmart. Uh, but what Bluffton is. Uh, growing up, I swore that I would never live in Bluffton, nor would I raise my family in Bluffton, simply because you know, there was no real sense of community. And, uh, and so White Oak Pastures has had quite the effect on the town of Bluffton, not intentionally. But uh, certainly, interestingly, we uh, started hiring all these really high performance folks uh, who understood, you know, regenerative, responsible agriculture. And of course, they they needed to move to the farm. And so uh, you can you can walk down the street in Bluffton and point to a house and there's a fellow that lives in California in that house and Philadelphia in that house and, uh, you know, uh, Haiti and that house. I mean, it, folks have literally come from all over uh, the United States and all over the world uh, to, to work at and or visit White Oak Pastures. Um, it With a, a company based in Bluffton that has more people employed than, than the town has citizens is an interesting, uh, an interesting scenario, however you think about it. But Bluffton is now a town that is thriving uh, in regards to, uh, you know, people, people who, who are passionate about, about one thing, and that is regenerative agriculture. If, if you don't, if you don't like regenerative agriculture, then don't come to Bluffton because that's what we do. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's, that's cool how it kind of does that. Um, all right. Uh, I don't know. What's, what's your favorite part of it all? I think the, the part that you just hit on the, the culture of, uh, of, of what of what we do is really exciting. You know, the, the industry as a whole, from chefs to consumers to uh, distributors to the people who are doing it every day. You know, what I love about it is the fact that you can be a photographer or an accountant uh, or an inventory manager or a cook or a butcher or a cowboy and have something in common with the person sitting beside you. You know, we're, we're all farmers. I, I don't fix fences or, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't get to do any of the cool stuff, but I still consider myself a farmer. And, and that's one of my favorite things that, you know, agriculture isn't now just a profession for old white men. It's uh, a profession that gives all of us the ability to contribute with our individual strength. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's really, it's, it is, it's so impressive how, how much things can, can actually grow when you try to, you know, rest, rest some of that, uh, I don't know, influence or whatever you want to call it from the whole centralized notion of, you know, all the, 
all that has become industrialized agriculture from uh, food, uh, meat, meat to vegetables to grains, whatever. But um, I'm glad, I'm glad you uh, are enjoying that. <laughs> um, where so people can can visit the farm. Um, I know that. What what can we do there when we come visit? Uh, good question. So our our tagline is radical tra- radically traditional farming uh, with tour, dine, and lodge beneath it. So we we give tours every Saturday or throughout the week by appointment. Uh, we've got a restaurant on the farm as well as cabins where people can lodge overnight. We believe that this is a really good way for people to become involved with the production systems that they support. You know, part of the issue with commodity agriculture is because people became uninterested in it. You know, they they allowed uh, themselves to know, you know, less and less and less about the products that they were paying for and endorsing with their hard-earned dollars. And and the only way that that can change is for people to. Uh, to people for people to have the opportunity to become involved again. So, uh, you know, the, the, the general store is open seven days a week. Uh, if you don't ever think you'll visit Bluffton, you can always order online through our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, we've got a really great blog that uh, keeps folks from out of town up to date on what we've been up to. So we send emails usually weekly with updates. Uh, you know, this morning I, uh, I helped unload 450 uh, young ewes uh, from Texas uh, that will be grazing our, um, our our partner's solar site about five miles from the farm. So you really never know what you're going to get into around here. <laughs> right, on, right on. Do you um, do you guys do any any educational type stuff? We do. Our next producer workshop is on April the 4th. Uh, and it will, it, it's really a, a pretty good, uh, a pretty good experience. So uh, our, our um, hog manager will speak for an hour. Our poultry production manager will speak for an hour, small ruminants an hour, cattle an hour. Uh, and then I'll talk on marketing for an hour. And then we'll have just an open question and answer period. Um, so we, we, we often do workshops, uh, whether they're hyper-focused on, uh, you know, leather crafting or tallow, uh, you know, tallow products, uh, or, you know, open to producers that, that want to farm like we do. Um, we usually have a, a, a workshop every other month. Nice. Okay. All right. Are you guys, are you planning on, uh, growing it all in the sense of, uh, I don't know, throw some, some rabbits on there or maybe some, some ostriches or emus or something. Any, any sites on expansion in that sense? Are you kind of happy where you are? You know, I, I, I don't think that we'll be adding an 11th species uh, to white oak pastures. I think that we've got plenty enough to learn with mm-hmm. the hen that we've got. Uh, I think for us, it's finding other partnerships. I mentioned the, the solar array, uh, you know, Silicon Ranch, which is the solar uh, arm of Shell Oil uh, has a uh, several arrays that are pretty close to the farm. Uh, so finding partnerships like those to manage land underneath uh, those those solar panels in a holistic, regenerative way, I think that's that's probably the direction that you'll see us grow and go. It's not it's not more, more, bigger, bigger. It's mm-hmm. it's how can we use what we've got uh, to make it more productive. Yeah. 
Yes, ma'am. Awesome. All right. Uh, and, uh, I'll put these links in the show notes, but, uh, where, where can they go to, to find you guys? So our website is www.whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, and there you can see, uh, the online store, which has all the products that we offer as well as you'll have an opportunity to sign up for our blog. Okay. And I, I will, I'll put that in there. I think I'll, I'll link to that, uh, the video there, 10, 10,000 hearts or whatever it is. Um, hundred thousand hearts. Uh, I'll link to that and, uh, Facebook as well. So people can go, go check you guys out and, uh, stop in for a visit sometime. But, uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, taking the time out of your day. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck with all your stuff. Thank you. Thank you for taking interest in what we do. We, we'd love to host y'all. Yeah, no problem. Regenerative farming, zero waste, humane, ethical—all uh, these wonderful things. They've even, even, uh, there's even been a study recently that says uh, white oak pastures beef reduces atmospheric carbon. Imagine that in in today's world when there's so much to do about the climate and you can't eat meat because it's bad for the climate. Well, here you go, here you go. You got something that uh, might say otherwise, right? It's uh different ways of doing things can can come up with different outcomes. And uh, here we are. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I, I talk to a lot of different people doing different things and uh, I enjoy it. And, um, you know, a lot of people have different things that I'd like to try, or maybe there's some things that I say, oh, I really don't like that. And I don't want to try that. I tell you, listening to, to Jenny talk about her farm is just was super inspiring. And it's one of those things that I don't have any aspirations to become that big. Um, but you know, there's different ways and techniques that, uh, you can implement things on, on your little spot um, or encourage, you know, a, a local farmer to check something out, right? Maybe try something a little, a little differently because in the end, it sounds like it's working out better for them, right? They went from, uh, not being cash positive to being cash positive to really flourishing. Um, they are a, a, just a fine, fine business down here. Um, just doing amazing things. So if you would like to order some beef, you can do that, uh, through them. They, they will deliver it. Um, let them know, let them know that you, uh, appreciate what they're doing. And if you appreciate what I'm doing, you can, uh, go head over to homesteadsandhomeschools.com slash Amazon and click through my affiliate link there. Or you can even go over to patreon.com slash the Liberty Hippie and, uh, for a couple bucks a month, you get some bonus content, you get uh, some stickers, some seeds, some merchandise, all sorts of other things over there. So go, go and check that out. A little, little number update. We're still still kind of on pace, a little falling off that, that, that four-digit number for February, but it's possible. It's possible. But I need you. I need you to share this with your friends. I need you to tell other people, spread it around, get the word out there, and uh, it's a good episode to, to share with all your agricultural friends i think um yeah so anyway guys i appreciate you being out here being there being wherever you are let me tickle your eardrums remember get out there 
so those seeds of liberty can all reap sheaves of freedom together. Dream.